Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Does neuroscience contradict the biblical view of sin and salvation or do the findings of neuroscience help us align more closely with the Bible? I'm Jeff Holsclaw and this is the Being With podcast looking at neuroscience, spiritual formation and faith and is produced by Grassroots Christianity which is growing the faith of everyday people. So today, I'm super excited to have with us today Dr. Joel Green, who is the Professor of New Testament Interpretation and the Associate Dean for the Center for Advanced Theological Studies at Fuller Seminary. Dr. Green has written and edited over 50 books, many of them award-winning. He has co-edited the book Discovering or Rediscovering the Scandal of the Cross, which is just great. I use that in classes. Uh, But a bit ago, he wrote a book called Body, Soul, and human nature, or the nature of hum- humanity in the Bible, which we're going to talk about today. Dr. Green, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Yes, well, we've had a couple of your colleagues on. Brad Strawn was on to talk about the embodied, the embedded, and the extended, and I love, I'm a sucker for alliteration, uh, the extended nature of the mind and community. We called that episode "How to Supersize Your Discipleship." We also had another one of your colleagues, Warren Brown, on uh, to talk about an episode called "Did My Neurons Make Me Do It?" Um, I was just talking to you about maybe I should have Nancy Murphy on, who also is uh, a philosopher and a theologian who talks about all these things. Uh, but today, you are a biblical scholar. And we wanted to talk about sin and salvation and what does or does not neuroscience help us understand when it comes to the Bible. Uh, But first of all, how did you get interested in these things? You went to school many years ago for, you know, to become a professor, to get a doctorate in New Testament. Uh, But you kind of went back to school a little bit to learn about neuroscience. Is that right? That is true. Uh, This all started for me back in the mid-90s. There was actually a, a group gathering here at Fuller Seminary at the time I was teaching up in Northern California. And uh, the aforementioned Nancy Murphy was a part of that group, uh, she and Warren Brown and some others. And they were looking for a, uh, a Bible person to be a part of the research cluster that they were developing. And so she called me up and uh, I came down uh, to Southern California and became a part of that conversation. Um, uh, Whatever Happened to the Soul is the book that came out of that one. And what happened next is a, a kind of uh, a catalyst or an avalanche. Uh, one cluster led to another, and I found myself repeatedly as the this, what I used to call the token Bible person in the conversation. <laughs> one theologian, one philosopher, one Bible person, and then like eight different kinds of neuroscientists 
And uh, I decided uh, at that point that it would be uh, interesting and in a strange way fun uh, to go back to school and uh, and learn the language, learn what's happening in neuroscience. And so uh, I enrolled in the University of Kentucky uh, College of Medicine and did work in uh, neuroanatomy, uh, neuropsychology, uh, history of neuroscience, et cetera, uh, as a graduate student. And the book that you've referred to, Body, Soul, and Human Life, uh, I called a kind of interim report mm-hmm. uh, where I was trying to bring together uh, my life as a biblical scholar and what I had been doing in interacting with neuro people, neuroscientist people. Uh, and that's that's how all this happened. Uh, early 2000s and on into uh, the next decade. Yeah, well, the... the... The 90s was considered, you know, the decade of the brain where all there was all the research and the, de- uh, the development of the technology to do more detailed research on the brain came out. And then all the studies in the late 90s, you know, were kind of hitting. And so you're caught up in all that. And so, yeah, I love the interim report. I'd love to hear the next report uh, that comes out of full-fledged one. I know you wrote a book called Conversion in uh, Luke Acts recently, which is maybe another kind of update of sorts. But how so i found the same thing is that i've just been knee deep in attachment theory and you know child and adult development and how this might interact with our understanding of our views of god and our development of personal as well as corporate discipleship and all these types of things but it's also really helped me read the bible better when i learn more about emotions when i learn more about desire or um shame or, or attachment with God, as I said, and you start reading the Psalms and things like that. And you're like, Oh, like this is the language of faith. It's, it's not counter to science. It's actually, you know, part of scriptures. And so that's why I was so excited to read your book when, but people are nervous that maybe neuroscience is going to overthrow or overturn kind of the language of faith and make it irrelevant. Have you run into that at all yourself or maybe? Even oh yeah. 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 Um, in some ways, uh, what I was trying to do in the book uh, was what I sometimes call a soft apologetic. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't trying to defend as much as I was trying to say no, no, not not that. Because there was this idea, and still is this idea, that uh, uh, the findings of neuroscience are going to overthrow uh, what we've come to believe, what the Bible says, and so on. And, and so my, my basic approach in the book was to say, actually, uh, uh, neuroscience has not been influencing biblical studies. Biblical studies has been on a track for a couple of hundred years that, that in some ways converges, not always, but converges with what neuroscience is telling us about uh, the human person and human communities. Mm. So it's really a matter of... Uh, of showing uh, relationships and convergences, not so much uh, uh, an emphasis on contradicting or defending. There's one area where I I think biblical uh, the biblical witness uh, presses against some or a lot of neuroscientific study, mm. and that is the degree to which neuroscientific study has in the past focused on one person at a time. And uh, Scripture is is really concerned with persons, but persons in community, with communities of persons, 
formation, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, more recent neuroscience has taken that into account, but the idea that you can isolate a person, study a person by him or herself, uh, that would be problematic from uh, the standpoint of biblical theology. Sure. Well, and, and kind of the Western roots of psychology and things like that were very individualistic based. And yes. I think neuroscience started that way. Uh, the kind of theoretical basis of this podcast is the technical version is uh, interpersonal neurobiology, which takes the we to be essential before the me kind of shows up. And so, yeah. And, and, and when you read the Bible, you find, you know, it's the we that is the most pertinent rather than the the individual. Well, I named this episode why having the mind of Christ requires a body, which kind of gets us at the second half of what we're going to talk about today. But the first part is, is how does neuroscience uh, or how could it help us kind of reclaim or recover a biblical understanding of sin? So can you kind of walk us through James, Peter, and Paul, or start with kind of the neuroscience kind of lens on, on human nature and how it might connect with sin? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the difficulties uh, that you run into uh, when you're doing biblical interpretation is what you bring with you to the text. Uh, there's this notion that you're just reading the text, uh, but in fact you're bringing uh, scaffolding ways of thinking that help you uh, and sometimes uh, harm you <laughs> as you think about what Scripture is saying. One of the things I think that that neuroscience does is it it pulls away uh, some of the scaffolding that can get in the way of, of reading Scripture uh, more or less on its own terms. It calls into question uh, some of the things that at least we in the West have taken pretty much for granted over the last, uh, say, 300 years. Uh, the individual uh, focus that you just mentioned, the, the, uh, the distinction between mind and body, uh, the the idea that you still hear, do as I say, not as I do, mm. or I know I did that, but that's not the real me. There, there are certain things that just come with the divided way we think about human beings that get in the way of the way we talk about sin and therefore get in the way of what we talk about uh, when we say salvation or conversion and so on. What happens with uh, with with sin is that we often think of sin either as something interior, uh, something that happens deep within me, and or we think of sin as an act, uh, a a thing that we did, a a wrongdoing. And uh, if you look at both neuroscience and at, as you say, Paul, Peter, um, uh, James, and so on, you uh, you, you see what I would call more organic ways of thinking. The metaphors that you would use would not be mechanistic as though uh, sin was bolted onto a system or a machine. The the metaphors are more organic. So Paul can talk about the fruit of sin or the fruit of the Spirit. Or Jesus can talk about good fruit coming from good plants and bad fruit coming from bad plants. Or James can talk about water uh, that produces uh, saltiness versus water that is pure. So these are, are maybe agricultural, they're, they're organic metaphors that suggest the degree to which sin is, is actually not simply a thing that we do or some internal thing, it's simply a part of who we are. Uh, First Peter is interesting in this respect because First Peter makes it really clear 
that as we go through life, we are being formed. The question is not, are you being formed? It's how you're being formed. Uh, formed uh, in, in this way of being in the world, this way of living, versus formed in that way of living, that way of being in the world. Uh, similarly, Paul can talk about sin. I'm thinking Romans uh, 6, 7, 8. Uh, or five, six, seven. Uh, Paul can talk about Romans not so much as individual things that we do, but as a, a power, as though sin had a capital S. Sin as a power that we need to be freed from, uh, not simply forgiven of. Sin mm-hmm. at work in our members, sin at work in our lives, sin at work in our communities, and so on. So this is this is very much a part of. Uh, what you would expect from a from a neuroscientific perspective would suggest the degree to which uh, we are fully integrated persons, inside, outside, uh, integrated, uh, being, doing, integrated, uh, speaking, uh, acting, feeling, uh, integrated. So in my in my classes, for example, I like to talk about uh, patterns of thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving. I wish I could say that in some way that had only one word in it, but here we are, where these things keep being separated. But thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving are actually far more integrated than uh, we might have come to expect growing up in the West, growing up with with thinking that humans come in distinct parts instead of as holes. Mm. Yeah, well, I want to I want to back up really quick. I, I love everything you just said. Um, in the West, we really have this, um, I was going to say addiction. I don't know if that's the right word, but, but maybe it is. We have this addiction to intentionality or to the will, to choice. Uh, and so like you said, um, we see sin as this interior kind of movement of the soul, maybe, or something like that. That is then, uh, it's given an intention by the mind, um, uh, and then our action kind of flows from that. And early on, you give lots of evidence uh, about how well the neuroscience kind of picture shows that that's not often, sometimes it is, but it's not often exactly what is happening, <laughs> is that we're not, we don't have intentions. Um, and then we act, sometimes we're acting, and then our brain just kind of fills in or graphs on an intention. And, and so there's questions of free will and determination and things like that. And when you go through and look at the Bible, looking for this kind of intentionality perspective, you'll find it a little bit. Um, But like you said, there's a lot of other ways of putting imagery around this idea of sin. When we talk about um, this in our baptismal classes at my church, we talk about, well, sin does need to be forgiven, but you also need to be freed from sin because you're a slave to it. And it's a power, it's an alien power. uh, And it's something that kind of needs to be fixed within you. And those two words, freed and fixed, that does kind of fit with a lot of the the neuroscience language of how we're shaped in our early life, how the neurons that fire together, wire together. And so we literally do have these kind of enslavements to ways of thinking and feeling and acting. What were those three words? Feeling, thinking, feeling. Believing and behaving. Believing and behaving. Uh, and so we, and we, forwards. And so we can, uh, you know, I'm a systematic theologian, so we're always supposed to do things in threes, right, for the Trinity. So oh, that's, okay. that's probably why I trimmed it down to the three. Um, and so the other thing that I thought was really interesting was you were talking about James, uh, the book of James. 
And you made this, you identified this contrast between friendship with God and friendship with the world as a way of understanding sin. Could you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me say, first of all, that uh, I think for a lot of us, the notion of intentionality or free will is a little more romanticized than is actually the case. I had a colleague years ago uh, turn 40, and he said to us at the little party we, we held, well, I guess I'm not going to be an NFL football player. Uh, and it was, it was an interesting comment to make that that actually is an interesting image for what we're talking about. Uh, he, he undertook a whole series of life choices uh, that led to the place at age 40 where he says, I don't guess I can be an NFL football player. It's not something he decided on the spot. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom Brady might get to decide that, but not my former colleague. Mm-hmm. A whole series of, of, of life choices that put you on a certain course that makes certain other life choices almost automatic. Uh, in fact, often automatic, that is unthinkingly. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the kind of person I am. Uh, this is the kind of uh, action that I engage in. So, uh, of course, we can say no to these things, uh, particularly if we find ourselves in a community uh, of practice that helps us with that. Uh, but the truth is, we often don't think that way. We simply go down the road that we're going. I I, I have this uh, image I remember from reading in uh, neuro uh, neuro literature. Uh, the idea that you're the person sitting on this humongous elephant and you can turn the elephant, uh, but it's not like you're really in charge. Uh, the elephant's going down the road, going down the path, and uh, and your ability to control it is not quite what you think of when you say, well, I could choose that or I could choose that. Uh, we, we, as I sometimes say when I'm teaching James, uh, we can only do what we are. Uh, uh, being and doing are that that integrated with James, uh, and that's why James uh, pushes against the notion of being of two minds, double-minded, uh, as though you could actually serve one or serve the other. Friendship with God and friendship with the world, the language James uses, uh, fits right into this. Friendship, if you think of it in, in first century Roman terms, uh, Greco-Roman terms, friendship uh, means uh, a communion at a deep level. Uh, it means living out of each other's pockets. It means sharing life goals, life resources, and so on. And it's simply the case that you can't be uh, have that kind of intimacy with God and that kind of intimacy with the world, uh, the world being, for James, not the earth that rotates and and uh, revolves, but earth as a uh, as a sphere of influence, as a sphere of influence over against uh, God. So uh, the issue here, of course, is simply that uh, these are two different ways. You can't do both at the same time. And uh, the household of God that James is is pressing on is is the household that follows people like Abraham and Rahab in uh, James chapter 2 in in, uh, serving God's royal rule in the world. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And friendship, you know, is not 
your Facebook friendship is just not this kind of, you know, real kind of distant, you know, you know, I have some friends from high school and I, you know, meet up with them every couple of times a year or I have, you know, some, you know, like baseball or basketball friends. Um, but it's really this idea of intimacy, which for, you know, neuroscience uh, and the language there, you know, speaks of attachment and the communities that you're attached to, where you find your values, your meaning, your significance, and your entire kind of narrative understanding of yourself. And that language of double-minded brings us now to the second part of this this episode, which is why having the mind of Christ requires a body, and that could be your physical body, but also a social body. But uh, let's talk about salvation or conversion or repentance. Um, You use a couple words, which I found very compelling, which is that uh, which is embodied conversion. You talk about new conceptual schemes for understanding the world and socialization and formation and these types of things. But how does uh, some of these kind of neuroscience concepts help us understand better maybe what conversion is? Yeah, thanks. Um, if if human beings uh, come as integrated wholes, then it stands to reason that uh, conversion or salvation is not related to some uh, you know, part of me, some inner part of me. In the same way, uh, it used to be thought uh, early 20th century, right, in some cases right up till today, that uh, conversion uh, is a matter of of uh, instantaneous crying out for help uh, when, uh, although that's possible, uh, it's often the case that we're, Go undergoing an entire uh, process by which we uh, uh, come closer, uh, experience God's grace, uh, put into practice God's grace, uh, cross a line, as it were, uh, into uh, from one sphere to another, from one community to another. But it has to do with, uh, as you say, embodied existence. Luke, Luke chapter 3 is a good example of this because... Uh, John the Baptist is laying out the importance of repentance. He uses the language of, of convert or repent. Uh, can be translated either way. And then the, um, uh, 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 he says, don't even, uh, don't even bother uh, calling yourselves children of Abraham uh, because what you need to be doing is putting into practice Abrahamic uh, behavior, which of course for Abraham would be faithful practice, especially hospitality, as Abraham gets talked about in Genesis and uh, after that. The crowds then say, What about us? What do we do? In other words, what does it look like for us to repent, to align ourselves with God's program of salvation? And John says, You have two tunics, two uh, outer ropes. Give one to the one who has none. Uh, you have extra food in the pantry. Give to those who have none. Those are, those are you know, uh, explicitly physical, you know, uh, material responses. The, uh, uh, the toll collectors, they say, what about us? What do we do? What does it look like for us to repent? Uh, don't collect more than you ought. What about us, the soldiers say? What does it look like when we repent? And the answer is, uh, be content with your pay and don't abuse your authority in your communities. In other words, uh, John gives us, or Luke gives us, as he as he represents John there, uh, he gives us some particular uh, mundane, day to day, work a day life 
ways of thinking about what conversion looks like. These are practices, embodied practices, that aren't simply expressions of conversion, but have the character of what I call conversionary practices. That is, they help to convert us in the same way that they show that we are on the conversionary uh, path, conversionary journey. Again, the image here is not mechanistic. You don't add uh, this practice onto a machine, bolted on, welded on. It grows out of and it feeds into who we are in the same way that a, a leaf on a plant feeds the plant as well as grows on the basis of the plant's own growth. Mm. So this is more in the sense of conversion as a process rather than just an instantaneous event. It's conversion yeah. is something we're constantly doing. And uh, while we're recording this right now uh, in the season of Lent, it'll, you know, everyone else will be listening to it during uh, Easter. But Lent gives us these practices to to do that are embodied and social. There's fasting, which is taking your body seriously, but not being overcome by the needs and desires uh, of your body. Then there's prayer, uh, which is a, certainly a spiritually directed practice, but it could be also very social. And then there's also almsgiving, which is an economic relational kind of practice that generosity is spilling out. So we're given these things that help us to practice our faith to kind of put the, our, the, the feet on our conversion. And so those things are, are really important. Well, uh, to close off, you know, one of my favorite uh, verses, you know, rightfully so for so many of us, is Romans 12 to do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So isn't salvation really just about our brains and our minds and the things we think? But it seems like this whole podcast is about all these other things. So could you help yeah. clarify why the mind of Christ requires a full body? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, let me say, first of all, in my tradition, uh, we think of those practices that you just mentioned as means of grace. Uh, means by which we experience, access, uh, embrace uh, God's graciousness. And we recognize uh, that those practices actually help to transform us. They, they lay out new patterns. And those patterns are the very patterns that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Uh, uh, the renewal of your, let me, let me use my phrase again, the renewal of your patterns of thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving. Mm -hmm. It's not simply, you know, some cognitive part of me, although it includes that. It has to do with the patterns by which I make sense of the world and by, by which I engage the world. And so it in, involves all of who we are. Um, it's not enough to, to have a mind uh, that's converted. By mind, I mean the, the Cartesian mind that's separate mm -hmm. from the rest of me, because, in fact, uh, both scripturally, and from a neuroscientific perspective, uh, the mind is is never by itself. Uh, it's it's uh, a property that arises from uh, human life, uh, all of who I am, and all of who I am in the community uh, that I find myself in. Mm. This is where our spiritual formation kind of has, uh, it runs into translation problems coming out of our Western kind of 
worldview, when we see the word mind, we think, you know, dualism and spiritualism and disembodied. Um, and yet that's not what that mind means, you know. And of course, and people always, you know, run by this, but of course, Paul had already said in Romans 12, 1, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he talks about his mind. Right. And those things aren't opposed to each other, for sure. Right. Well, hey, right. so if you have a moment, can I try something out on you? So this is, you know, sure. you're a biblical scholar and I'm more of a systematic theologian. But you've been reading Dan Siegel and the Developing Mind, and he really emphasizes this idea that the connection between minds and brains and relationships, this interpersonal neurobiology, is really all about the flow of what he calls energy and information. Uh, the energy is the impulses of the nervous system and the connections of the synapses. Uh, but then there's the neural networks that create this information and all the feedback of these two things. And I just, in my mind, I have this sense that you know if if the whole world you know and I, we could get into the physics of energy and information also but in in neuroscience if if things really are predicated on this flowing of energy and information is there a way of of thinking that that maybe is the work of the sun and the spirit within us that the spirit is giving us new desires so like in galatians 5 16 so i say Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh so those are like kind of the energy the impulses that are flowing through us, but then it's the mind of Christ. It's uh, the truth that he set before us or the truth of the gospel that we have received. So that's like the work of the sun. So we're having this full transformation of our energy and our information of our desires and our truth. And that that is in one sense, what salvation is, is the work of the sun and the spirit kind of flowing in and among us neurally, as well as relationally. How does that sound? What do you think? No, I, I, I think that has a lot to go for it. Um, if it's true that even if we think of conversion as a moment, it's a moment that opens up a process, opens up a journey. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are always in the process of becoming, if we're always being changed, and if our changes are uh, especially shaped by our experiences with the people around us, then in my mind, it makes a lot of sense to, one, take into account the work of the Holy Spirit through others on us, but also, uh, rather than thinking of the Holy Spirit as, in a sense, as top-down, uh, having influence on Jeff or Joel, what if the Holy Spirit is actually having influence, if you will, bottom-up, that is, at the very levels of, uh, what did you call it, energy and Energy and information. information. Yeah, at the at, at those those basic uh, elemental uh, levels, uh, so that they shape uh, what is produced in us over time. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one neuroscientist talks about it as uh, the nesting of our brains and the nesting of our lives in communities. And I, I like that language of nesting. Uh, because of the way it suggests the degree to which we are always being shaped uh, in relationship uh, to others. Mm. Yeah, amen. Well, a couple of people have been watching live online, and this just uh, threw up some comments that they've really appreciated this conversation and kind of bringing these, these different worlds together. 
Uh, and like I think I said at the beginning or maybe before the show began, that the more I learn about these things, the more I see that the ancient wisdom in Scripture uh, and the spiritual practices that the church has always been engaging with, just, you know, they knew they knew what was going on. They may, maybe didn't have all the specific scientific language, but there's so much alignment that there's sometimes our drift as a culture, our philosophies and theologies as a theologian. You know, I got to, you know, got to throw my own people under the bus you know we've we've right. kind of lost it lost the thread of the story uh, a little bit um and yet these things help us i think read the bible uh better and help us to understand our own faith and our our faith journeys better so thank you so much for joining us today great to be with you yes well thank you all for listening this is again the being with podcast where we're exploring the intersection of neuroscience spiritual formation and faith Please uh, jump into the show notes and join the Being With community so that you don't miss any new episodes or updates or blog posts and other things uh, and resources. Some people drop some resources in the comments, so we'll kind of collate through all of those. So please, if you do just one thing, join the Being With community, the newsletter. Otherwise, like, subscribe on Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and all the other places that you can get these things. Thank you again so much, Dr. Green. Thank you.